21. But for now, we're in John chapter 20. We're taking a brief break from Deuteronomy, John chapter 20. And we're going to read together verses 1 through 18. John 20, verses 1 through 18. And because this is the word of the living God, and you are the people of God, and this is the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand? John 20, beginning in verse 1. Reading through verse 18, John writes, as he's carried along by the Spirit, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I suspect that some of you, perhaps many of you have heard the mantra that goes like this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, 
in all things, charity. Let me say that one more time. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. On the one hand, this pithy statement reminds us that there is a great deal of diversity that is present in Christianity within the parameters of what we would call properly Christian, there really are some disagreements, various kinds of beliefs. Now, they fall within the broader umbrella of Christianity, but there is diversity. And so this mantra, this slogan reminds us of this diversity, the reality of diversity in the body of Christ. On the other hand, the slogan communicates that there are certain items that form the center, we might even call it the epicenter, the nucleus of Christianity. These items are essential to Christianity. They are ingredients to Christianity. They are inherent to Christianity. In fact, anything worthy of the name Christian in some form or fashion, adheres to these essential tenets. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of those tenets. No resurrection, no Christianity. And I would add to this, anyone, of course, who claims to be a Christian in the historic sense of the term, in the biblical sense of the term, is someone who is simultaneously claiming to believe in and surrender to the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we've gathered this Lord's Day. That's why we gather every Lord's Day on account of not just the empty tomb, you understand. It's more than that, and we're going to see that in the text. The empty tomb tells you nothing but the body of Jesus wasn't there. No, we've gathered because of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as a result, of course, the tomb was empty. Well, this morning, we're going to meditate on this central tenet of the Christian faith by looking together at this text, John chapter 20. So many texts we could look at. And as we'll march through this text, so many rabbits, Pastor Tim, we could chase. And we'll limit ourselves. We will limit ourselves, believe it or not. At the conclusion of this sermon, you may decide he didn't limit himself. Trust me, he did. And as we walk through John 20, we're going to identify, if you're taking notes, we're going to identify four characteristics of the resurrection. It is Easter. I added one, okay? Four characteristics of the resurrection. They grow right out of the text. And these are ways of summarizing the reality of the resurrection, as you're going to see with me in John chapter 20, I hope. So John 20, four characteristics of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And together, all of these characteristics invite us and compel us to faith and hope and love, and surrender, and obedience to Jesus Christ. You understand, we're not simply studying a historical event. We are. It's not less than a historical event, but it's far more than a historical event. We are seeking this morning to adhere to, submit to, bow before the risen Christ who lays claim over every facet of our lives. That's our goal. 
as we walk through these characteristics. Okay, so the first characteristic of the resurrection I would like you to see in John chapter 20 is this. I'm gonna give it to you and then we'll unpack it together. The resurrection of Jesus was bodily. We could say physical. The resurrection of Jesus was a bodily resurrection. As we read a moment ago, Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb where Jesus had been buried just a couple of days prior. When she arrives, verse one tells us that she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, that's all the text tells us at this point, because at this point, Mary runs back and has a conversation with Peter and the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as we're going to talk about in just a moment. But she interprets this, this this stone having been rolled away from the tomb. She interprets this, of course, as a, a tomb that's empty. Now, that leads us to believe, potentially, that Mary had seen something that demonstrated that the body, in fact, was not there. This was a physical resurrection. And notice that she tells Peter and the other disciple in verse two, look at her words. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. So she doesn't just say, look, I got to the tomb and the stone had been rolled away. And that scared me, so I ran. In which case they would have all run to the tomb to see if the body had been tampered with or what was going on, what they were doing to the body of the Lord the body of the one that these disciples had followed for some time. No, she says here, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not, and notice she uses the first person plural. By the way, that's important. We do not know where they've laid him. The reason why this is important, this is a rabbit, okay? It's a small one and it won't run far, I don't think. I'll try not to let it run far. If you read the Gospels, alongside of one another, you'll notice there are some differences. I don't think there are discrepancies, nor do I think they're contradictions. We believe this is the word of God as Christians. But there are different tendencies that the gospel authors have. And one tendency is what we call telescoping. It's taking various stories and conflating them or, or honing in on a facet of the story. And at times, you need to ask the question when you're reading through the gospels, from whose perspective am I reading this particular account, this particular section? And so there are these hints like this. For example, some people argue, look, John is different than the other, the other gospels because John says that it was just Mary that went. But notice Mary uses the first person plural. We don't know where they put him. Who's we? Presumably, John is assuming you've read the other gospels. You know some of these other stories. So understand that. These gospels are to be read as complementary, informing one another. So they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. And then the disciple, of course, referred to here simply as the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved is likely John. And many of you know this. Some of you perhaps don't. This is likely John the apostle since John is nowhere mentioned by name in the gospel of John. Nowhere mentioned by name. Now look again at verses three and four. So Peter went out with the other disciple. There it is. That other disciple is John. And they were going toward the tomb. Verse four, I love this. Both of them were running together. Now you're John, you're writing this gospel. And you're a guy. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. But I am a guy. And he describes in verse four, while both of them were running, 
One of them outran the other. In case there was any question. <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps I'll get there eventually. John, I'll have a conversation and he'll say you've falsely impugned. <laughs> Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, that is John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, John, by the way, isn't just interested. And he may not be interested at all in painting himself in a positive light because he goes on to say, John stops at the entrance of the tomb and peers in. Notice that? So the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John stops at the entrance and peers in. He's timid. Peter, true to form, busts through. Right? I mean, if he's going to make a mistake, he's really going to make a mistake. Some of you are like, all right, I'm so thankful for Peter in the story. And he rushes right on into the tomb, which would have likely been hewn out of a large rock. There's some discussion about this, but this would have been common. These rocky tombs, as it were. What did Peter and eventually John discover? Well, they discovered the linen burial cloths and the facial cloth of Jesus. The physical body of Jesus was absent. Now, why was the physical body of Jesus absent? Because, going back to this point, and this is a point, perhaps it's, you know, it doesn't need to be spoken again and again and again, but I think it does because the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a bodily resurrection. John highlights this point later in the chapter, and, and this is not part of our text proper this morning, but I'll mention it to you. When he records Jesus' appearance to Thomas, perhaps you know the story of Thomas, oftentimes referred to as Doubting Thomas. How about that? For all of eternity, that's your name. Doubting Thomas. Nevertheless, Jesus appears to Thomas, and look over with me, if you would, at verses 26 and 27. Same chapter, verses 26 and 27. Eight days later, now by the way, the New Testament authors will oftentimes count inclusively. Inclusively. This is why we talk about on the third day Jesus was raised, and yet he was crucified on Friday. If you're counting a full 24-hour period of time as one day, I'm not a mathematician, but... Friday to Saturday is 24 hours, and then Saturday to Sunday is 24 hours. We've got less than even two full days. But they count inclusively. Friday is day one. Saturday, day two. The day on which he was raised is day three. The, the ancients oftentimes did this. Well, this is another example. In verse 28, eight days later, if you start counting Sunday, the first day of the week, as day one, what day is this now? It's Sunday again. This is the first day of the week, the day on which the early church gathered on a regular basis. So eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. What a greeting. And this is after Thomas, of course, said, I'm not gonna believe a word you say unless I can actually touch the wounds. And of course, he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This is what leads Thomas, by the way, to his confession in verse 28, my Lord and my God. The resurrection, don't miss this. The resurrection of Jesus is not simply a claim that the disciples had some post-mortem encounters with Jesus who had previously died through crucifixion. 
The resurrection is not a metaphor for describing a subjective and inner experience of encountering the presence of Jesus somehow, some way after his death. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was and remains a physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. It's that outlandish. And by the way, if you were one of the Jewish leaders at the time, or if you were one of the Roman leaders at the time, which by the way, we know there were attempts at squashing the early Christian movement. If you wanted to squash the early Christian movement and you wanted to squash the rumors that were circulating about the resurrection of Jesus among his followers, what would you have done? Just produce the body. Just produce the body. It really was that simple. And there would be no Christianity today. There was just one problem with this. It wasn't there. And it wasn't there because Jesus Christ had been raised bodily, physically from the dead. Secondly, second characteristic we find in the text, the resurrection of Jesus was unexpected. It was unexpected. Now, this is important for us as 21st century Christians or people who in some form or fashion are familiar with Christianity because we assume these beliefs. You know, as we read these stories, it's easy for us to assume, well, this is the way the story reads. And we've read these stories over and over and over again. Perhaps we've heard these stories told to us growing up. We've heard multiple sermons about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we anticipate it. We know the story. But for the disciples, the resurrection of Jesus was unexpected. Pay close attention to the way Mary Magdalene responded to the empty tomb in verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, Well, look, he's been raised just as he said. No, that's not what she says. She assumes dead people stay dead. You understand this is not a modern discovery. It doesn't take the scientific revolution to discover that dead people actually typically stay dead. No, Mary concludes they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And, and yes, I know, Jesus said this multiple times throughout the Gospels. He's talking to his disciples and he says to them, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. They're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. But guess what? They did not get it. And I don't know, maybe the disciples from time to time thought, ooh, that's deep. It must be an allegory for something. They didn't get it. It was unexpected. Similarly, Peter and John struggled and were perplexed by the empty tomb. John records in verse 9. Look down at that text. Verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now we'll go back to that in just a moment. But they didn't understand it. Now back to that, you know, he's a guy thing. Wouldn't it have been easy to say, well, you know, we knew it all along. No, he didn't do that. Some historians call this the criterion of embarrassment. That is to say that when the author 
is willing to embarrass himself, he's likely telling the truth. And that's what happens here. We didn't understand it. We didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. The disciples were not expecting a Messiah who died and was raised from the dead. In fact, what we know is that while there were many would-be Messiahs, this was common within about 100 years of Jesus. And there still are messianic movements today. We know that there were many would-be Messiahs and messianic movements in and around this time. Those messianic movements died out, don't miss this, with the death of the so-called Messiah. They died out. Why? Because no one anticipated a Messiah who was going to die and be raised from the dead. Everybody anticipated a Messiah who would come and reign over, over Rome and, and set the Jewish people free from their Gentile captivity. They expected a Messiah who would come and sit on David's throne. But they didn't suspect that the throne was a cross. They didn't suspect that actually victory would come by means of apparent defeat. They didn't suspect that life, the avenue to life was actually death. And that the death of Jesus was more like a birth than what we commonly understood to be dying. It was off of their radar. And so it was with these other messianic movements. In fact, you know, there are various historians that have written on this. I even read one a few years ago that uh, wrote his dissertation on this and said something along the lines of, you know, when there was a, a Messiah that came to town and, and he, he gathered a large following and, and eventually what would happen, of course, is he'd be put to death or he'd die through some other incident, unforeseen tragedy. And when this would-be Messiah, when this self-professing Messiah died, what they didn't do is say, well, that's okay because he's going to come back from the dead. What they did is they went and found his brother or his cousin and they said, you know what? Let's do this. This must be the Messiah. It was close, but we're just going to transfer it. He's related after all. And then the, the cousin or the brother would then become the so-called Messiah of the Messianic movement. And then guess what would happen? That brother or that cousin would die. And that's how this thing worked. By the way, Jesus did have brothers. What you don't have in early Christianity is you don't have, this is a rabbit. It's another small one. And they don't run far. See, it's just right here. <clears throat> I'm pulling it back a little bit right now. You don't have his brothers claiming immediately after his death, you know, look, it was all true, but we misidentified the Messiah I'm him. In fact, what you have is you have brothers who are skeptical of Jesus. James is a great example of this. We find out early on in Christianity as Jesus is ministering on the earth, James doesn't believe in Jesus. <laughs> if you're going to convince your brother that you're the Messiah, you've, you've, done, you've quite done something. Right? You have siblings. Your siblings know you and they know better. Others may think highly of you. I have a brother that I grew up with, a younger brother, and, and if he were here, he could tell you. I'm glad he's not. Praise the Lord. Probably wouldn't be pastoring here very long. 
They know us, don't they? But what happens with James? Well, James is a skeptic. And then James becomes a pastor, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. James writes a letter and he refers to himself not as the brother of the Lord. He refers to himself as the servant of the Lord. Don't miss that. A brother claiming to be the servant of the Lord. And we find out, of course, that he becomes a Christian by means of the appearance of his brother from the dead. This is different. But the resurrection was unexpected. It was unexpected because the cross was unexpected. In fact, the road to Emmaus, you know, this is, this is in Luke's gospel. If we're tying all this together, Luke 24, there are a couple of disciples that are on their way to a place called Emmaus. And as they're on their way, Jesus appears to them. And we'll come all the way back to this as well. When Jesus appears, oftentimes, initially, he's unrecognizable after his resurrection. And he appears to them, and he's walking with them, and he's talking with them. And of course, as readers, we know who this is, but they don't. So it's, you know, it's slightly awkward for them. And as, as he's talking to them, here's what they say. They say in verse 21, Luke, Luke chapter 24, we had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. What are they saying? We had hoped he was the Messiah, but he's dead now. In fact, they go on to say, it's been three days. Isn't that ironic? It's been three days. He's dead. I mean, he's really dead. It's over. They were not expecting this. So what could have caused these disheartened and disillusioned followers of Jesus to become courageous and bold witnesses of a resurrected Messiah, the unexpected resurrection of Jesus? That's how the thing gets turned around. That's how someone like James, the brother of the Lord, becomes actually someone who eventually gives up his life for faith in the resurrection of Jesus. He dies for this. Yes, yeah, C.S. Lewis once wrote something like this. We'll paraphrase it a bit. Yeah. Mm. If Wes were on the drums. <laughs> I think I've done that to you once or so before. But boy, I enjoy it. What was I saying? James, Lewis. Lewis, I'm so glad Pastor Tim's in the room, aren't you? C.S. Lewis, Lewis said something along these lines. He said, you don't really know what you believe until you're willing to give up your life for it. James died for his faith in Jesus, his brother. What revolutionized Saul of Tarsus? Saul, who eventually became known as Paul who persecuted the church, who persecuted Christians, who actually would serve to oversee the death of those who claimed that Jesus was the risen and ascended Messiah. What transformed him out of persecutor to bold and courageous church planter who would eventually lose his life in Rome for his faith in Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the unexpected resurrection of Jesus I'm baffled, I really am. I'm baffled when I hear, going back to Lewis, C.S. Lewis, when I hear what 
he would call the chronological snobbery that many moderns have in their evaluations of the ancients. As if the ancients were gullible and starry-eyed romantics who don't know any better than to believe in something as foolish as a resurrection. The ancients knew as well as any modern that dead people stay dead. This revolutionized them. And they had to reconsider their view of reality. They had to reconsider their view of scripture. They had to reconsider everything. Really leading us to our third characteristic. The resurrection of Jesus was first bodily. Secondly, it was unexpected. And third, third, the resurrection of Jesus was the fulfillment of scripture. It was the fulfillment of scripture. Now there's tension here between point two and point three or characteristic two and characteristic three and we'll highlight that tension in just a moment. Look again at verse nine where John and Peter are described. And we read this a moment ago. For as yet they, that is John and Peter or Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. As yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now what is the scripture John is referring to here, this is probably not a specific passage of Scripture. Some think it is. In fact, some commentators will do their best to guess what passage in particular John is referring to in this text. And I think that's unfruitful, really. I think rather this is a way collectively of referring to all of Scripture. They didn't understand the testimony of all of Scripture. And by the way, what is Scripture at this point? It's the Old Testament, at least what we would call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. In fact, if you were in the early church, you know, if you were uh, even in the second century, early second century, if you walked into the church and you said to them, look, open up your Bible to the Old Testament, they would look at you funny. The old what? We don't have that. We have the scriptures. Because it was seen, of course, as one story. And before you have a New Testament canon that is kind of a universally recognized corpus of literature that the church agreed upon as the authoritative word of God bearing testimony to Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You had the Old Testament. And so here what we find is that the resurrection of Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament. What does that mean? That means that if you don't see the resurrection of Jesus throughout your Old Testament, you aren't reading it Christianly. I remember coming to, to realize this, and this is really a passion of mine. This is one of the rabbits that really begins to grow and runs fast, and so we've got to fight this one. But I will tell you, I remember when I came to realize that actually, if I were reading my Old Testament simply as a, a recollection of historical events or a collection of moral principles through which I'm called to live for the glory of God. I'm not reading it properly or fully. I remember coming to realize, wait a minute, the early church is reading their Old Testaments from Genesis on as a testimony to Jesus Christ. As a testimony that indeed God the Son would become human while remaining God the Son. That he would live in obedience to God as the servant of the Lord as the human being, par excellence, that he would go to the cross and bear the penalty for humans before God, that he would be buried 
but that he, of course, would not suffer decay, that he would be raised in glorious power from the dead on the third day. If I didn't read my Old Testament as bearing witness to this glorious gospel and this glorious Savior, then I wasn't reading my Old Testament Christianly. This is also why you will find concerning me, I really enjoy preaching from the Old Testament. I really do. I I love preaching from Scripture. But there are, you know, I think part of it is preaching from the New Testament is just almost too easy at times. If I can say it that way, it does the work for you. The Old Testament, you know, you have to bring the hermeneutic of Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection to bear on the text. And then those moments of discovery just, for me, bring me to my knees before the Savior. But that's what's happening here in the text. In fact, if we went back over to Luke 24, I'll just read a couple of passages. Don't turn there. It wasn't until Jesus had been raised and appeared to the disciples that we read things like this, verses 44, 45, and 46. Then he said to them, that is, Jesus said to these disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, don't miss this, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The scales fell off, as it were. And now they're reading the text as a testimony to Jesus. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, so on and so forth. He continues to unpack and exposit the Old Testament. And he does it as something that refers to, bears testimony to, and is fulfilled by Jesus Christ, his incarnation, death, and The resurrection fulfills scripture, but it also, let's say it this way, and and perhaps there's one term I could have thought through and used at this point. I didn't do this. You can come to me afterward and suggest some, perhaps. The resurrection both fulfills scripture, but it also transforms the way we interpret scripture. In other words, it is the interpretive key It's the lens through which we finally see what's there. It's into the text that wasn't in the text. No, but we weren't able to see what was in the text, not fully until Jesus Christ had come and died and was raised from the dead. And so the early Christians, I was reading one of the early Christian documents this past week, written in the second century by a pastor that is one of my role models. I've not met him, though I feel like I have. And they're reading texts like Amos 9, verse 11. These are Old Testament texts. And Amos 9, 11 reads, In that day I will raise up the booth of David. And they thought, of course. This is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. We didn't see it before, but now we do. Or they read passages like Psalm 3, verse 5. Again, this last week I was reading an early Christian, early Christian father, early church father. And he quoted Psalm 3, verse 5. And Psalm 3, verse 5 says this. Listen, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And I woke again actually is the same language of resurrection. 
And this early Christian pastor who's writing this, I was reading this past week, says, this is Jesus, of course. What is he doing? Now, we can quibble over the particular ways they're interpreting, but we should not quibble over seeing Jesus throughout the Old Testament because that's exactly what Jesus teaches us to do. But none of this could have been understood prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Finally, last one. You're doing great. Last one. In addition to being bodily, unexpected, and the fulfillment of Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus, this is a bit more complex, was the beginning of complete restoration. Let me say that again. The resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of complete restoration. I really think if I'm pinned down and I'm asked the question, what is John's primary point here? I think it's this one. If I had to pick a primary point. Do you recall how John's gospel begins? He begins with the language of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. That's how the Bible begins. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John writes his gospel and he begins, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So John actually frames his entire gospel around this creation narrative. We are, as we pick up the New Testament text and begin reading John 1, 1, we are to remember Genesis chapter 1. Now, let's keep going with this just a little bit, and I think you'll get where we're going. Where was Jesus buried? In the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, right? But look back with me, if you would, at John 19, verses 41 and 42. Just right before our text, John 19, 41 and 42. Now, in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden... Not next to the garden, in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, was it odd to have a tomb in a garden? Not necessarily. There are other tombs in gardens. But John, carry along by the Spirit, includes it. Why? We'll keep talking about this. So you have John beginning his gospel in the beginning was the word. And now you have John setting the stage for the resurrection of Jesus Christ taking place where? In the garden. Now when Jesus first appeared to Mary, verse 15, what does Mary suppose about Jesus? Who does she think he is? The gardener. How right she is. But not the gardener she thinks. He is the gardener. The gardener. The one who in Genesis chapter 1 created the garden and who is now recreating, as it were, restoring and renewing 
Also, John emphasizes the first day of the week over and over again, right? So verse one, the first day of the week. Verse 19, the first day of the week. Later on, verse 26, eight days later, which of course we know is the first day of the week. This is a new beginning. So, in the beginning, that's the narrative. We're in a garden. This is the first day of the week. Finally, one more thing, just in case you're not convinced. John 20, verse 22 Look over with me at the text. John 20, verse 22. And when he had said this, that is when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what in the world does this remind you of? Genesis 2, verse 7 says that God, when he created man from the dust, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Do you see what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually accomplishing in the text? The resurrection is a new beginning through which God is restoring all that was lost on account of sin, on account of death, on account of corruption. That's what's taking place in John's gospel. This isn't some small and isolated event. All of creation is now beginning to be put back together and it begins in Christ. And this is why the apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the day is coming when everything is summed up in Jesus. It all starts at the resurrection. Paul describes Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is to say, what happened to Christ in the resurrection is what will indeed happen to all who trust in Christ when he returns. But this isn't simply true for humans. You understand. There is, don't get me wrong, there is a uniqueness to the experience of humans being redeemed. But God is piecing back together all of creation and he's doing so through the coming of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, that through the death and resurrection of Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. Some theologians have a hard time with that. What is he saying? He's saying what John is saying. This is a kind of newness, a restoration, a renewal, and it all begins in the garden where Jesus' body was placed. And then subsequently, God raised Jesus from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the beginning of complete restoration. By the way, we do a good job as evangelicals emphasizing how the resurrection of Jesus Christ calls us individually to repentance and faith in Jesus. And and, and we should, we should highlight and accentuate that reality. Indeed, it demands your life, your soul, your all. But you understand that the story is bigger than you are. It's bigger than we are. It's a renewal of all of creation. It's everything being summed up under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits. And then Paul, of course, will say, you know, Romans 8, all of creation is what? Groaning. Groaning. 
waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. As if, of course, to imply that when the revelation of the sons of God takes place, when Jesus returns and we then are raised to glorious life, those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ and surrendered to him were raised to glorious life. In that moment, when the revelation of the sons of God finally materializes, all of creation is renewed. And it starts with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the beginning. It's not the end. It comes at the end of the gospel, and then, of course, this is why I thank God in his kindness, we have multiple books after these gospels because it really is a new beginning. Now, all of this is more than a description of something that happened 2,000 years ago. I think, you, I think you know that, and I think what we've said has communicated this, but let's say that again. It's more than a description of something that happened 2,000 years ago. There is an interesting facet of the resurrection appearances, and I mentioned this a moment ago. We're just kind of going to use this to land the plane, okay? Often, Jesus is initially unrecognizable. We said that. And you notice that in the text. So he, he is raised from the dead, and then he appears to his various disciples at various locations, various sizes of disciples, right, in the sense of the size of the crowd. Sometimes it's one person. Sometimes it's 500 people at one time. Various geographical locations all around and there are times when they just don't recognize him. This is true for Mary Magdalene in verse 14. And John highlights this. It's also true in chapter 21, verse 4, where the disciples don't initially recognize Jesus at the Sea of Tiberias. So a little bit of a distance at that point. But they don't recognize him initially. And John, I think, is the one who says, it's the Lord. Also, Luke 24, the other text we've been mentioning this morning, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't initially recognize Jesus. So what gives? What's going on? And there are several reasons for this, and we're not going to unpack all of those reasons. I want to focus on what the Spirit's doing in John 20, I think. It is not in seeing Jesus with her eyes that Mary becomes convinced of the resurrection. That's not how she becomes convinced. What convinces Mary? Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And when he calls her by name, the scales fall off. <laughs> and she's alive. In some sense, for the very first time, I think she would say. Hearing Jesus call her by name is what summons her to faith in the risen Savior. And this shouldn't surprise us because concerning the good shepherd, in John 10, Jesus said, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his what? Voice. They know his voice. You will not likely see the risen Jesus this side of glory. 
I'm not telling you you won't see him. It's unlikely. However, what you may experience in God's goodness and his mercy is the risen Savior calling you by name. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, you know, it's possible, I suppose, that you'll hear an audible voice. I never have. I never have. I've been a Christian now for mm, 22 years, maybe, almost. And I don't ever recall hearing an audible voice. But I do remember when I first became a Christian, I remember reading the text of Scripture. A text that prior to that moment was nothing more than an ancient text that a group of people claimed to believe. Nothing more than that. And I remember reading it alone. And then I remember something changing. I do. I remember leaving that place. Can I say it this way? Having heard the voice of Christ. I remember leaving that place sensing that actually the one about whom all of these things have been written actually has called my name now. Yeah, call it subjective. I think it's more than that, but it is indeed not less than that. It's something personally that I experience, absolutely. But it's also consistent with the objective word of God. And I think it's consistent with what Mary experienced. It was not seeing the risen Jesus that convinced Mary. It was the power of Christ's voice and call that convinced her. Friends, listen to me. I cannot convince you to trust in Jesus Christ. I can't. No amount of evidence will convince you to trust in Jesus Christ. It's possible, I suppose, to present an amount of evidence that would convince you that at some point Jesus was raised from the dead. But there are people, there are actually people who believe that God chose to raise Jesus from the dead, but they don't follow Jesus. So that's not enough. It's not enough. We're not interested simply in concurring that there was this historical reality called Jesus that he died and was raised from the dead. No, it's more than that. What we need, what we need is to be renewed in relationship with Jesus Christ and surrender to Jesus Christ. And that can only happen if he calls us by name. So, this morning... This Easter, let me submit to you that perhaps in his goodness, he is calling you by name. It may be that he's calling you by name as you continue to grow in your love for Jesus Christ, as you continue to live a life in surrender to Christ, as you continue to see your sins for what they really are, and you submit yourself to him, and you seek to please him. Maybe you knew him before you came in these doors, and you recognize his voice as we read through John chapter 20, because you've heard his voice before. And praise the Lord for that. He continues to summon you by name. But there may be others of you in this room and you've heard all about Jesus, maybe even your whole life. But you've never actually sensed that by his spirit, he's actually calling you to repentance and faith. 
And if that's where you are, if perhaps for the very first time you sense the calling of the risen Jesus Christ, then I would plead with you, don't leave this place without talking to someone about that. You can talk to one of us even after the service as you walk out of these doors or for those of you who are out there as you walk forward and take a right. And just to the left for you all in here, just to the left of our main worship center, we've got on the right-hand side out there a room called Crossroads. And there will be a pastor in there who would love to talk with you about the risen and ascended and victorious Jesus Christ who perhaps is calling you for the very first time this Easter morning to life in him. Well, let's pray together and let's ask the Lord to continue his kind work of renewing all things through Christ Jesus and even doing so among us here this morning. Christ Jesus, we are so very thankful for the privilege we have had of opening up the text of Scripture and hearing your voice. We're thankful to have seen by your grace and your mercy that your resurrection was a bodily resurrection. It was physical. That your resurrection was unexpected, that it took the disciples by surprise, that your resurrection was the fulfillment of Scripture and that your resurrection was the beginning of complete restoration. Oh Christ, but may it not be that anyone in this place leaves here without benefiting from that restoration. Father, I pray that through Christ Jesus and by the work of your spirit, that work of restoration would continue in us and among us today. And may it be that we have the joy and the privilege having heard the voice of our Savior like Mary, being overwhelmed and of going in surrender to serve Christ and to proclaim Christ with joy to others. Christ, we are thankful to you for you are risen. You are risen indeed. In your name we pray, amen.